are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Turn with me to Revelation, the second chapter, where we will continue our series that we're calling What the Spirit Says to the Churches. This morning, we're going to be looking at the second of the seven churches that Jesus addresses in these two chapters, uh, Revelation 2 and 3. We observed as we began uh, this series last week um, that even though Jesus is speaking to specific churches in, in this section of Scripture, to particular congregations, John has recorded them for us. And so there's a sense in which, uh, though Jesus makes specific uh, uh, address to, to these particular congregations, he's also in a very real sense speaking to us. Um, he's speaking to the, the big C church. And he asks things that he wants to say to Emmanuel Church. And so last week we looked at Jesus' message to the church uh, in Ephesus. And what we found in his words to this congregation was that on the one hand, he commended them for uh, their, their diligence to guard the truth from false teachers. But on the other hand, he admonished them for letting their love for him grow cool. And so he calls them to return to the love that they had at first. And he calls us to consider our own love for him. And so I just wonder from, from last week's message to this week, how's your week been? Have you been spending time with Jesus in the place of prayer? Have you slowed down to cultivate a love for him by reading and meditating on his word? I received a few really encouraging notes uh, from, from a few of you over this past week. Uh, in response to last week's message. And so I want to thank those of you who shared, shared with me how the Spirit spoke to you. I just want to exhort us to, to be a people who are responsive and sensitive to what the Spirit would say. That's what this whole series is about. So this morning we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11 in Revelation chapter 2, where we find Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna. The city of Smyrna... Uh, is just 35 miles north of where Ephesus used to be on the coast of the Aegean Sea. It is the only one of the seven churches, uh, excuse me, only one of the seven cities uh, mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3 that's still in existence today. Uh, today, Smyrna is known by uh, the name Ismar. It's in Turkey. Um, and in the first century, Smyrna was a beautiful city. Uh, residents there were, were proud to be uh, a local of Smyrna, they, ref they referred to themselves as the ornament or the pride of Asia. Uh, the city was known for its patriotic loyalty to the empire. In fact, around the year 29 AD, uh, the Asian cities that were under Roman rule uh, competed for the coveted uh, opportunity to erect a temple in honor of Emperor Tiberius. And Smyrna was awarded that honor. And so uh, it, was a it was a city that was fervent in emperor worship. It was known for its honoring of, of Caesar. And this background really sets the table for Jesus' words to this particular congregation found in Smyrna. So let's read Jesus' words together. Romans 8, 
or Romans 2 rather, beginning in verse 8. If you don't have a Bible, we should have these words on the screen. God's word says this, Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who is dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. And you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. The church in Smyrna was facing hardship. They were, they were, a, suffer, they were a church that was suffering persecution because of their loyalty to Christ. Civil authorities didn't care so much that they were Christians. They didn't care that they worshipped a man who, who claimed to have risen from the dead, this man Jesus. They, they weren't concerned with that so much, so long as they were willing to also worship the emperor. But refusal to pay homage to Caesar by sprinkling incense on the fire that perpetually burned before his statue, that was a surefire way to get in trouble. To declare Jesus his Lord, and yet refuse to declare Caesar is Lord, that's going to cost you. Now, one would think that this issue of, of loyalty to God would have also affected the Jews who lived in Smyrna. I mean, after all, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. The Shema that, that the Jewish people recited several times a day begins, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Why weren't the Jews under fire for their faith? Well, some of the Jews had found a workaround on a technicality. They would not be forced to worship Caesar as a god so long as they offered sacrifices in honor of him as a ruler. So they would pay their tribute, which looked exactly like emperor worship, but they would classify it differently in their minds. Technically, they weren't worshiping the emperor. They were only honoring him, they said. But in truth, this looked a whole lot like worship, which is why the Christians refused to do it. And so naturally, there were, there were certain Jews in Smyrna that didn't want to be associated with the Christians who refused to pay their tribute to the emperor. It could get them in trouble. And so up until this time, Christians and, and Jews were kind of lumped together. Christians were kind of viewed as this sect uh, within Judaism, which meant that they were tolerated by the Romans and their worship was allowed. But, but some Jews in Smyrna began to fight hard to draw a clear line of distinction between the followers of the way, Jesus' followers, Christians as we refer to ourselves, and, and, and Jews. They wanted to, to, to clearly distinguish the two groups. And some Jews even began 
to report Christian activities to the authorities in order to get them in trouble. There were other reasons for this. They also really just couldn't understand a people who they thought distorted the Mosaic law. And they considered the worship of a crucified criminal as divine Messiah to be a blasphemy. And so all that to say, the church in Smyrna was facing persecution, both from the civil authorities, the Romans, and also from certain Jews. Now, let me make a parenthetical comment before we move on. Over the years, some have appealed to to this text to justify anti-Semitism. And while it's true that some Jews in Smyrna in the first century were oppressing and persecuting Christians, this wasn't true of all the Jewish people. And so I want to be careful, because of the language that's present in this text, to not create any sense of anti-Semitism from this text. I think Sam Storms states it really clear. There is simply and without qualification no place whatsoever in the Christian faith for any degree of anti-Semitism. Jesus was a Jew, all 12 of the disciples were Jews, and the entire Bible except for the, Gospels, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts was written by Jews. So when verse 10 calls this group of antagonizing Jews a synagogue of Satan, it's not saying this over all of the Jewish people, but only those who are attacking the church. To persecute the church of Jesus Christ is to do the work of the enemy, regardless of ethnicity or or group that you belong to. And that's what was happening. One of the clear results of this persecution was economic hardship. In an environment antagonistic to their faith, it grew difficult for many of the Christians living in Smyrna to make an honest living. Some of the merchants that they had formerly done business with would no longer trade with them. They would no longer sell And buy from Christians. And so many of the believers were becoming economically destitute. In addition to the poverty, there were were targets. They were targets of of, of physical assault. Christians became victims of, of looting and physical violence. And they also faced the threat of legal punishment by the Romans, including imprisonment or worse. And so I want you to try to imagine the situation with me. Try to put yourself in the shoes of a believer in Smyrna. You're you're a new convert to the way of Jesus. Only recently did you hear the message about Jesus. Only, Only recently did you learn of this Jesus who is the Son of God, who can forgive your sins and and give you eternal life. And and suddenly your your newfound faith in Jesus is proving to be a dangerous conversion. If someone finds out that you're a follower of Jesus, it could cost you your job. It might mean that merchants will no longer sell you food or clothing. Attending public worship could get you beaten. Refusing to offer incense to the emperor could get you accused of treason and thrown in prison. You have a family to provide for. You have a wife to protect. You have have kids who look up to you, who are watching you. How would you feel? You might be tempted to compromise. 
mean, after all, your Jewish neighbors have found a way to work around the whole emperor worship thing. Can't we just call this tribute and move on? You might be tempted not to attend worship. What if something happened to your family? Can't you just worship privately? You might be tempted to doubt. Do you think any of the believers in Smyrna wondered, Jesus, where are you? Do you see us? Do you know what's going on? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've wondered that. Maybe you felt that. Jesus, where are you right now? Jesus, do you see what's going on in our world? Jesus, can you see what's happening to me? It is to suffering and scared believers that Jesus speaks these words of reassurance in verses 8 through 11. It's been pointed out that there are no words of correction here to the church in Smyrna. Five of the seven churches that Jesus addresses get some word of rebuke. They get some word of correction. But only to this church and to the church in Philadelphia is there no rebuke. It's, It's to this small group of ragtag believers that Jesus speaks only a word of consolation. And the first thing that he wants to assure them is, I know. I know your affliction. I know your poverty. I know your slander. I know your fears. This is like a father who embraces his scared son as he cries on his shoulder and whispers into his ear, Listen, son, I know. It's okay. I'm here. Jesus reassures these believers in Smyrna that he is not removed from their trials, that he is not distant from their pain or their fears, that he knows them all full well. In essence, what Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna is, I see you. I see you. I know. Jesus knows. And sometimes, isn't that what our hearts need to know most? The simple reassurance that we are seen and that we are known. Friends, listen to me. Whatever you may have walked in here facing today, I want you to know this. Jesus sees you. He knows your situation. You are not forgotten. You are not overlooked. Jesus knows. And in fact, there are some things that Jesus wants you to know. Not only does Jesus know your situation, there are a few things that he wants you to know. Look at verse 8. Jesus begins his address to this church and he says, Write to the angel. Remember, we saw that, that the angel, there's a messenger, an angel that's overseeing each church that's really representative of the fact that Jesus is among the churches and that he is guarding these churches. He is personally involved with each of these churches. So he says, Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last. The one who was dead and came to life. Notice that Jesus doesn't address the church, and he could have. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says Jesus of Nazareth. No, he says, write, thus says the first and the last. The one who was dead and came to life. Jesus wants these struggling, fearful saints to remember some specific aspects of his identity. Number one, that he is the first And the last. This is language taken from the book of Isaiah where Yahweh pictures his eternal nature to his people. 
He's the first. Nothing has come before him. He's, he's the last. Nothing comes behind him. He is the beginning and the end. The eternal one. The all-encompassing one. And here Jesus reassures his church, the church in Smyrna, that, that he is that sovereign Lord. That he and Yahweh are one and the same, ruling over time, ruling over history. And don't miss the point. His rule over history provides a basis of comfort to this church. When I was a kid, we used to sing this song. He's got the whole world in his hands. Remember this song? He's got the whole world in his hands. And then we would, it would narrow in. He's got you and me, brother. He's got you and me, sister. He's got the little tiny babies. That's really good theology. Here Jesus is reassuring his church of this truth. I've got the whole world in my hands. I've got the church in Smyrna in my hands. And friends, he's got the church called Emmanuel in his hands. He's got you and he's got me in his hands. The Apostle Paul declares to the church in Colossae that in him, in Christ, all things hold together. He holds eternity in his hands. He is the first and the last. But that's not all. He's also the one who was dead and came to life. I was recently listening to a conversation with Pastor Tim Keller, who has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. If you, if you don't know much about pancreatic cancer, then typically the prognosis is not good. If you get pancreatic cancer, your prognosis, generally speaking, is not good. And so in this interview, Keller was pretty candid about facing death. He knows that his time is running short. And so naturally, this has provoked doubts and fears that he's had to, to, to wrestle through. By the way, pastor struggles with, struggles with doubt and fear. Like, we struggle with doubt and fear just like everybody else. And so, and so Keller says, more than ever, he's, he's gone back and, and he's, he's wrestled through and investigated the veracity, the truthfulness of the resurrection. I think Keller's right when he says that the entire Christian faith really hinges on whether or not Jesus physically rose from the dead. And so he says, more than ever before in his life, he's gone back and he's investigated the, the resurrection. And here's, here's what Keller concludes, two things. Number one, it's really true. He says he is more convinced than he has ever been that Jesus really, truly, bodily rose from the dead. In fact, he says it would be impossible at this point to convince him otherwise. And then here's the second thing that he says. He says, and because it's really true, here's what I'm assured of. It's all going to be okay. Everything is going to turn out all right. When Jesus addresses himself to this church in Smyrna, this, this small, struggling church, facing persecution, as the one who died, who was dead and came to life, he's signaling to them, whatever you're currently going through, it's all going to be okay. Everything's going to turn out all right. 
Because Jesus is the one who, who, who died and came back to life, the final word for those of us who are in Christ is never pain. It's, it's, it's never fear. It's not even death. The final word for those of us who are in Christ is always redeeming love. This current moment that you're in, I, I, I don't know what moment you're, you're currently facing. I don't know what life has dealt you, but I know it's been a hard year. And this current moment may feel like death. Listen to me. In Christ, we are assured new life. In fact, we catch a glimpse of this in verse 9. Notice this amazing little phrase that Jesus inserts to the end of verse 9. He says, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, I know it's hard right now. I know the persecution is painful and scary. I know that you're poor and needy. But, but the reality is, in me, you are blessed beyond your wildest imagination. In the face of poverty and persecution, Jesus points them to look beyond their present circumstances to a greater spiritual reality. The truth is, he's saying, you are defined more by your relationship with me than you are by anything in this world. Your true identity is found in me. You are rich. In his letter to the church at Ephesus, the Apostle Paul unpacks this amazing theological reality that through being united to Christ by faith, believers have been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. It's a mystery, but by faith, Paul is saying that you and I are somehow already, this very moment, seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. The Apostle Peter, who, who also wrote to a group of believers who were facing persecution, and he, he said something similar. He said that through the new birth, believers not only have the hope of resurrection, but they have the promise of an imperishable inheritance. Listen to what Peter says. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Don't miss it. Into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What Peter's saying is this, when you were born again, when the Holy Spirit came into your heart and made you new, at that moment, you were brought into the kingdom of God. You went from darkness to light. You went from the kingdom of, of, of the world into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And when that happened, you became a part of his family, which means you not only have the assurance of eternal life, you have the promise of an inheritance that is being guarded in heaven right now for you. Until we go to be with him. You are rich. Right now you may feel poor. Others may call you poor. This life may be going poorly. But if you are brought low for Christ's sake, Jesus says you are truly rich. If you are willing to share in Christ's afflictions, you are blessed. You remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. To a suffering church, Jesus reminds them of their identity. 
They are inheritors of an unshakable kingdom. Romans 8.17 says, The Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may be glorified with Him. So this leads us to the last thing. Not only the reality that Jesus knows, And not only what we need to know, but finally all we need to do. Verse 10. Jesus says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil's about to throw some of you in prison to test you and you will experience affliction for 10 days. 10 days is representative of a short duration of time. It doesn't necessarily literally mean 10 days. Here's the exhortation. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. In essence, what Jesus says to these struggling believers is hold on. Be faithful. This is trust language. This is trust language. Jesus is saying, keep trusting in me no matter what. No matter what challenges come, don't give up hope. Don't stop trusting me because on the other side of death, even if you have to face death, is the crown of life for the one who endures. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Listen, no matter what century you live in or what country you reside in or what community you belong to, Faithfulness to Jesus will at some point cost you. Following Jesus is going to bring challenges. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when the day of trial comes, there's only one thing to do. And that's to hold on to Jesus. Hold on to the one who's holding on to you. He's got you in his hands, and everything's going to be okay. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you this day because your word tells us that no one is able to snatch us out of your hand, that nothing can separate us from your love. Come what may, we are secure in the grace of your son, Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would strengthen our faith to keep on trusting in Christ. That you would make us faithful in his strong name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.